Hello and welcome to Enterprise Linux Security, episode 75. I'm here as always with Zhao from Tuxcare. How you doing? All good, Jay. As always, a pleasure to be here with you. And, we, from, and we're going to start with a quick update on the story from the last episode when we discussed the Las Vegas incident. Yep. Um, bringing up to speed those that have been living under a rock for the past couple of weeks. Um, there was this uh, cybersecurity incident that affected the MGM resorts, um, casino and hotel and other facilities on the US and uh, also the um, Caesars Palace was also affected. Oh wow. At the yeah, at the time we didn't have all the details and they started to be merged the day after we recorded the podcast. So there are quite a few more details that we would like to share with you guys. Yep. So um, we briefly hinted at that this might have been an insider job, somebody with insider access that was behind the, the incident. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it was, but not in the, the way that you would expect. Oh. So the thing was, the attackers did some open source intelligence gathering before the attack, and they actually tracked down one of the admins on their IT, IT infrastructure, on MGM's inf IT infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Tracking them down, they then contacted tech support, their internal tech support for MGM, and made that type of attack where you try to trick the, the support person into um, resetting your password or your credentials. And it's very urgent, it's a problem, we need to fix this right now, I don't have my phone, I can't do 2FA, so you really need to change my password right now this instant or everything crashes. Oh. And they got the tech support people to, to help them this way. That is, so, that is wow, that is uh, not what I expected, but I think it's kind of somewhat <laughs> similar, not like you said, not the quite, uh, quite the inside job we were yeah. thinking of. It's an insider job in the sense that it was an insider account that was the, the initial trigger for all of this. And the attackers actually did their research pretty well. Um, the person that they targeted for this actually had admin privileges on their Okta infrastructure that mm. they used at MGM. So Okta was, management, was managing their identity management and uh, was basically connected to all the systems that they had. And so when they got this account that had admin privileges, to that, they basically got access to, to everything. It's the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, that really is. Uh, so for those that aren't aware, Okta is a single sign-on service that uh, companies often use to roll out their authentication or onboarding, offboarding of accounts in one central system. Um, just like you're saying, uh, keys to the castle, because that gives them everything. Yeah, to the castle. Yep. So um, Caesar's Palace, as I mentioned, was also affected in this. The, the relationship between the compromise of the account of the MGM uh, employee and Caesar's Palace is not clear. I haven't quite figured out how they jumped from one to the other, but it was affected in the same incident or at least on the same day or the same hour or something. When one was affected, the other was also affected. Caesars, uh, they actually filed an SEC disclosure around this because they're mandated to mm -hmm. by SEC regulations. And they disclosed that they had been asked for a 30 million ransom for the information that was stolen not to be leaked. Wow. They admitted to paying 15 million. And they also admitted something else on that disclosure note, which is, okay, we paid, we tried to settle this and get this solved as quickly as possible, but we have no guarantee that in the future the data will not be leaked anyway. Because, again, 
you're paying the guys that are holding you at gunpoint, who's to say that they're going to keep their word, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the final point here is that because they have already paid once, they now have this very big bullseye target on their back saying, okay, kick me or hack me again because I will pay. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's uh, it's kind of like watching some of those criminal movies from way back, except it's data security rather than, um, or yeah, it'd be a shame if something happens and then they pay and then something still happens and then that's where, where we could be, so. And a big target on their back for other people to hack them. And it's not even MGM's first time with uh, a security incident. Yeah. As we had mentioned last time, they had had a, a data breach in 2020 or 2019. And it was divulged in 2020. Um, but yeah, it's not their first time around on this. And <laughs> apparently they didn't learn enough from the previous one. Um, it goes to show that separation of privileges, separation of concerns is a real thing and you should be aware of it and you should take care so that the same account is not admin on multiple places. Um, the account that is admin on, on Okta should have all the available multi-factors that you can think of and then some. Oh yeah. Because, yeah, also getting your tech support some more training so that they don't fall for this. This is similar to phoning somebody and pretending to be their child or something and, oh, I really need you to transfer me this amount of money right now because I'm in pro and I need to fix this right now and I have to hang up. Right. By that. <laughs> yeah. So you do and, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's um, quite the story still. A developing story probably will be more because, you know, like I said, they have a target on their back, so... Yeah, and the, one of the things that I'm still curious about in this story, now that we know how this happened, which was something we didn't at the time that we talked about it initially, is the relationship between uh, MGM's IT infrastructure and Caesar's, because there has to be a link there. Either it's the same Okta facility that is being used by both, there has to be something there. Right. Um, another thing, and this will tie into our main story today, is that the the information gathering that uh, ha that took place here before this attack that took here in, that got the, the information about the person with the admin account privileges is something that is also very useful and is actually fundamental for the attack that we're going to be talking about today which is repo jacking repo jacking yep that's the topic for today and let's get right into it so this comes from the Aqua blog, aquasec.com. And essentially, this is a supply chain attack, which we have spoken about before, where you have something in the supply chain, the software engineering, software development supply chain could be a library um, or something that gets rolled into the project. And then next thing you know, it um, goes everywhere. But this is a different kind of a supply chain attack because it they they basically blame GitHub for this in the article. I, I'm not really sure if it's because GitHub is the most popular, um, uh, uh, presumably most popular Git front end for Git project management. But it's essentially a situation where you have a repository that changes, a username that changes, and then there's a link from the old to the new. So if you change, you know, my super awesome project to my super awesome project two or a new name, then a link will be made so that way if you commit back to that it'll go to the new project name so that way the developers if they have something local that has the old address old username 
old project name, which is part of the URL, then what ends up happening is they push to that or developer pushes because they didn't um, you know, think to change the link and then it gets uploaded um, or it, the link is there and then it gets redirected to the new name. And this is in place to help developers because you know, if you have a company name change, for example, like an acquisition, this is that's a common vector for this, or you change the name of your software project would be another, then um, it's useful to have that link because the, even if someone, like I said, forgets to change it on their local copy of the repository, it, it won't give them an error when they push over to it, which is helpful, but then as security often is, something that's helpful can also be unhelpful depending on uh, how it's used here. You know, in this case, we've talked about supply chain attacks multiple times before, and it's because it, you're not targeting directly the application, you're not targeting directly the system, you're targeting the tools that those things use, and that's an interesting way to approach security. I mean, every time we talk about a new supply chain attack, we always mention, "Oh, this is so creative. We haven't seen this before." Or, Nobody thought of this before or something yep. like that. Because they're all different. That's the thing. All of the supply chain attacks, there are so many different types of things that fall into this category that it's quite difficult to even talk about just supply chain attack and then encompass all of this. Um, as you were saying, repo jacking specifically targets when you change the URL to a GitHub repository. And we, again, like you were saying, we're talking about GitHub because it has hundreds, over a hundred million repositories there. I believe they mentioned 125 different repository names in the research they presented. Mm -hmm. Last time I had checked, there were 88 different active, 88 million different active projects on GitHub. I checked this a few months back for some other reason. Mm -hmm. um, but it's in the high millions and it's a very large number of repositories. And the facility that GitHub provides you is that as you were saying, when there's a company name change, when there's a username change for some reason, when there's an acquisition or a merger or something like that and you want all the assets under the new name, links that are out there that point to the old one, you don't need to change all of them, you don't need to worry about all of them because GitHub will silently introduce that link that you just mentioned. So if you use the old link, then it points you to the new repository and you will still find the code and you will still be able to use your Git operations there. Mm -hmm. That's very useful because it doesn't break automation scripts. Right. The attack itself happens when somebody takes over the old name. So imagine you had company A and then you had a few GitHub repositories under that. Then the company gets renamed to company B. So company A is just a link until somebody claims company A name again. Right. And then they can recreate new repository. They can create new repositories with the same old names and the link that existed disappears. And if somebody uses the old link that's out there, they will go to the, the new to the new one the, under the attacker control. Yep. Um, so in a nutshell, that's the, the, the attack right there. Exactly right. Oh, now, go ahead. And this affects many, many different things, and many are, may not even be that obvious at face value. Even stuff like documentation. Say you create this guide, okay, this is installation guide, this is just on the readme file or something like that, it's not even part of the code. You need to clone this GitHub repository, then you use these instructions, and then you deploy, and then make compile, and ta-da, you have the application. 
if the code that you're pulling is not the code that you intended to, if it's under the attacker control, then you're just telling people, okay, this is how you infect your systems with malware. Right. And that's a big problem. And that's not even part of the code, so no security tool is going to be checking that. They will only be, be looking at code, so it's not even part of the code. That's a very big problem there. It is, yeah. No, no one and nothing is prepared for this unless they already knew about the possibility of this. So according to the research document that we will have linked everywhere that this podcast uh, is going to be published after recording is finished, I'll have that on there. They're saying they have a they've compiled a list of 125 million unique repository names. Now, I want to clarify something. They didn't say 125 million repositories, 125 million unique repository names, because the name changes. So you have, you know, a name A and name B could be the same repository, but they have sampled 1% of those name changes. So 1.25 million repository names. And of those... They found 36,983 repositories were vulnerable to repo jacking. Now, I want to clarify again, like I mentioned, this is not the entirety of GitHub. They're alleging that if they did sample the entirety of GitHub, that number would be quite larger. And I, obviously it would be because they're showing in their paper there's over 300 million repositories, according to GitHub publications. And that's quite a large number. So if we, you know, instead of 1% or 1.25%, imagine that entire snapshot. But then the question might be, you know, how does somebody find the old name? Because it changed, you know, how do they get a hold of that? So essentially there is a tool and I have it in my notes here. Let me see if I can find the name of it. I believe it was GH Torrent. Yep, GH Torrent has a, it records a any public event that happens on GitHub and it stores it in a database. So someone could go on there and sample a snapshot of snapshot window, you know, a month or a year or whatever. And you could get information on name change, changes and things like that, and then use that to then find if the company you want to target is in the is there. Uh, obviously, we're not condoning anything here, so don't take anything I said as instructions for doing this on your own. It's illegal, so I just want to get that out of the way. But obviously, you know that that's the case. GH Torrent pro, the, that project has that information, and it's used for that or can be used by a threat actor for that purpose. And Google and Lyft were among the companies that had vulnerable repositories. The others decided to remain anonymous for obvious reasons, but uh, they were notified of the vulnerability. Yeah. So Google, because there was that name changed to Alphabet, so some of the repositories were changed to a different name and then the links were created. Um, that tool that you mentioned, that ghtorrent tool that you mentioned, it actually stores a bit more than just the repository name changes. It stores, like you said, every public event, and that includes any commit, any deletion, um, any user creation. All of those things can, will appear on the logs that those guys have. Um, as you can imagine, it's quite massive. Right. So, um, you would imagine that something is easily exploitable as these would have some protection in place from GitHub. And they do. They actually have a facility in place precisely to fight against this. However, that facility only comes into play if the repository that has undergone the name change had at least 100 clones in the week before the name change. So that means only the very large ones will be protected automatically. Right. Yep. Um, and 
the thing here is that I imagine they looked at their logs and they found that threshold as being appropriate. But the thing here is that no project is completely isolated today. No code project is self-contained. You always import libraries to do this or that. Again, developers don't want to waste time reinventing the wheel. There are people specialized in creating math libraries or uh, networking libraries or whatever, encryption, whatever. So you're not going to rewrite that from scratch. You're simply importing the code from another repository. The one that gets the protection might just be the main one, but all the other dependencies might not have such a protection. So if there's a name change on those, those will be attackable. Mm -hmm. As we've seen, for example, again on the last episode, I believe I mentioned this, again, a different type of supply chain attack where a specific piece of malware would look for uh, NetBeans, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it would look for your IDE, your Java IDE, and if it found it, it would infect other projects that you'd create through it. The, there is a very large diversity here on what this type of attacks can do. So you can never be completely sure that the code that you're pulling is actually 100% safe from this. But just knowing that you're pulling the code from GitHub, that it has the right repository name, all of that is no longer enough to guarantee you that you're getting the right code, the code that you were expecting to get. Exactly. You yep. might be pulling the library that does this and that because that's what everybody uses and recommends and you've seen the name mentioned in countless documents, so you decide to pull it, but suddenly there has been an attack like this on that repository and now you're getting attacker-controlled code. Yep, very good description. That's absolutely correct. So. In, in practice, what you have here, you know, you think of a name change or an acquisition, for example, that's one of two main attack vectors here. Company A changes their name to company B. So it, it would be something like github.com, I think, slash user slash company A or something like that. And then they change their name to company B. So that's what's, what's being used now. But now that they changed the, the name of the company, if another user wants to create an account under customer A, they can because the company changed the name. So the original name is now made available to someone to set up a new account. Now, one possible mitigation that GitHub could enact here is to not allow someone to have the original name again, which you know might be a possible way. Um, the other attack vector, the company name could stay the same and the project name changes or they both change. Um, they can't really enforce that, in my opinion, unless you disagree, on a GitHub project, because think of a situation where the software team gets together, they want to change the name to this, this other name, and they do it. And then maybe they change their mind and, and hypothetically want to change it back to the original name. Now they can't change the name of their own project back to the original name if there's a um, you know something in place that doesn't allow them to use the same name of their project again. And I'm not saying that's a reasonable way to um, fix this, but there's different attack vectors here. So what that means is it's going to fall on the developer or the you know development manager to make sure that they're paying attention to this. This reminds me of something that happens when you let your DNS domain expire. And there's always somebody that's ready to snatch up a domain that has some traffic yep. as soon as you let it expire. And you go to, re to try to, to get it again and oh, somebody else bought it already. And this seems like exactly the same situation. Mm -hmm. Somebody might just be looking at the events that are happening on GitHub, waiting for a name change and then immediately going in and snatching the name. And there are quite a few projects there that are so appetizing for a potential attacker that yeah, it's not even funny. 
I mean, take for example the the npm package manager for Java for Node.js. Um, the packages are built straight from the code in GitHub. That's entirely automatic. When you try to create a new package, the the build code will actually include the name of the the GitHub repository. Will pull the code during the build process and create the package. Something like this happens in the mid <laughs> while you're preparing your packages and you get the malicious code and then you have a malicious package out there. Yeah. Again, there are so many scenarios where this can make everything fall down <laughs> that it's not even funny. Yep. What I was mentioning before about the, the documentation, there are tools that will check your code for issues. There are tools that will do static code analysis and will look for malicious behavior in the code and all of that. But it doesn't cover, for example, in, um, instructions. Um, I go back to this because it's, I mean, we do it every day. We need to look up how something is done. We go out, we find the documentation, we read the documentation, we follow the steps, and we get to the same result ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, if in the documentation you have the, the URL for a GitHub repository and you don't update that documentation anymore, it gets exposed to something like this. I mean, the, the Google repositories, for example, people use Google's code. Mm-hmm. It's usually good code, so people tend to use it. Um, there are documentation. There are documents out there that, for sure, include the URL to some of those to some of those GitHub repositories. People following the instructions today will find code that is in the right place, but is not what they are expecting it to be. And there are so many different ways to to hide malicious activities in code that it's not immediately apparent. That yeah, I mean we see that every day. And I'm going to mention something right now that we talk, we've talked about several times. You know, I've mentioned it on countless YouTube videos separate from the podcast. We've mentioned it on the podcast, I don't know how many times. When you go to install something on your Linux server, for example, and it says do, you know, wget URL pipe to sudo bash, for example, to install it. And we tell people download the script before you do this and look at it. And somebody might ask, what are you looking for? And I might answer anything that's out of the ordinary or suspicious. Here's something to look for, okay? If are you are the URLs correct? Are they going to the right places? Are they pulling the right things? Do you have, you know, evildomain.com? is part of one of the URLs inside the, the script or something like that. And then somebody runs it. And then the next thing they, they know, they have malware on their server. So that's one potential attack vector among many. But just to give you an idea, this affects URLs. So anywhere you have URLs, you have the possibility of this. If you did not update them, you know, you have to update them manually because not you know, it's not going to be automatically a sunset situation after a few weeks, the the old link goes away and people have a certain amount of time. Um, You have to do that yourself as the manager of the software project. And if someone's not paying attention to this, then there could be URLs in there that go to some other, or some malware or threat actor's website. Next thing you know, there's a supply chain attack and it's happened. But picture this, imagine you're Google. Google and employees of Google are not the only ones writing documents on how to use Google code. There are countless other people out there creating documents where those things are referenced. Google has no control over those. So even if they know to do that, they don't have access to all the documents where that is present to fix that. There are some names that should never be allowed to be repeated. And again, I'm sure that GitHub is aware of this and for very large companies, for quite a large sum of money, they are providing that. But 
pro tip here, if you're going to change the name of your company, don't sunset the old one, don't take away the old one, create an, a new one, copy the repository over to the new one, but let the, the other one in place. That way nobody can reuse it. Yep. Because the, the situation that you were describing, having URLs in the, in, the, in the script that you pull from the internet, here, if you look at the URLs, they are perfectly fine, and they are exactly the URLs that the documentation is mentioning, and they are perfectly fine in GitHub repositories. They are just not under the control of who you're supposed, you are expecting them to be. Right. Which is entirely similar to domain hijacking attacks, DNS domain hijacking attacks. Um, if I take your domain through some mean, if I'm able to purchase the domain that you have after it immediately expires and I'm waiting for that and I purchase it the moment it expires, now it's my domain serving whatever I want it to serve. And people who have the link for it will still reach it, will still be able to get there. And if I do the attack correctly, the website will even look like the old mm -hmm. one. This is something that, say, banks have to face. This is a problem that they have. I don't know how you guys do it there in the US, but here in Portugal, every now and then we receive messages, oh, be alert for websites that claim to be bank so-and-so, and they look exactly the same. Yeah, they do. It's very easy to copy the, the looks of a website to another. It's the content that then will be malicious. Right. And this is exactly the same type of situation. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress enough how dangerous this is for automation scenarios. When you have a CI-CD pipeline, when you have scripts that automatically build whatever code you're using, when your application gets updated and automatically pulls the dependencies from GitHub, all of those things are immediately at risk if one repository gets compromised. You should definitely take a look at your automation scripts to see if you're pulling something that is not under your control from GitHub and making sure that there has been no name changes in the past for it. That's something that you can check. So, yeah, very dangerous for many, many different scenarios, this. Exactly right. So if you have, you know, when I say you, obviously, development or anyone that manages a project uh, on GitHub or whatever source control system you're using, if you have undergone a name change, it doesn't even have to be recent. You know, it could be something that happened years before. This isn't like... A, you know, starting now, this is a problem. This is, it's been a problem and someone, you know, is figuring this out. Um, make sure if you've had a name change that you especially look at your repositories. And just like you said, it's better just to create a new repository, move the, move the, move it over there. There's, there's ways of getting your commit history if you want the messages over there, but still check the URLs all the same, no matter what. And, Start a new repository is one way to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be doing a find and replace or doing a you know recursive grep through your repository to find every occurrence of HTTP. They're going to be micromanaging each and every one. And depending how many links you have in there, uh, it could easily miss one. And that one you missed could be a big problem. So definitely check that if you've had a name change at all, not just recently, you know, if your company was Acme LLC and then, then is Acme Incorporated or something, you know, even something like that. If you've changed the name of your repository, then definitely check that as well. And you, you could still keep the old repository. You can make it private, for example, or you could just pull it down and, you know, put it in your archiving system if you have one. But don't leave it open or pointing to another location. It's, it's essentially, 
something pointing to something else. You know, we always say it's always DNS. Maybe later we'll be saying it's always Git or <laughs> GitHub or something like that. <laughs> but it kind of seems to be because in some ways, because this is um, a relatively easy attack vector and um, I, I don't feel like you really need that that much in the way of technical knowledge. You don't even have to know the programming language that the project contains to have um, something like this happen. The automated scripts, you could have something, obviously you need to have some familiar with that. But uh, another example that I thought of is I was looking through my newsfeed earlier and uh, Popey, who used to work for Canonical, had an article, I haven't read it yet, but it was essentially about Hugo, a static site generator where um, you could use GitHub Actions to deploy a site that's written in Hugo. And that's there's a script in play at, for this, and that's a perfect scenario. Obviously, Popey's article has nothing to do with this whatsoever, and there's nothing on his side. It's none of that. I'm just, you know, recommending the article because he's a talented person. But the, the, you know, when you have a, it just reminded me of Hugo because when you have a static site generator, which means you have something that's generating HTML files that are then uploaded instead of having something that's more dynamic. It could still be dynamic. It's just uploaded via automation then you could have something like this happen to where something else is deployed to your web server than what you uh, thought you had automated. So definitely have to take a look at this and see if this is something that you can, uh, you know, possibly be exposed to if that applies to you. You can actually be exposed to this in more ways than that. Um, if your Linux distribution has a build process in place where it pulls the code, the upstream code for the packages that it's packaging, directly from GitHub, packages them, and then distributes it through their repositories, that's a, another way that malicious code can get into your system. And again, through exactly the same way, somebody compromise, changes a name, they don't notice that, they continue using the same URL, the URL points to malicious code. That's another scenario. And that's the thing with all of the supply chain attacks, right? The last thing that you're using, the code that you're using, the binary that you're sorry, the binary that you're deploying on your system that you're using, has been compromised prior to reaching your system. Um, there has been some behavior introduced that you're not expecting it, and it can happen through so many different ways that we've have already covered in the in the podcast before. This is just another one, but you won't have the telltale signs of a breach or a security incident, there's no firewall that's going to protect you from this, there's no, I don't know, no rule set that's going to cover from you, that's going to cover you from this. So you just do whatever you've always been doing. You're pulling the code from the same place or you're deploying the binary that you've always done, getting the updates from the right place. And the code is already infected when it reaches the system. It's not something that happens after the system is running. That's a very significant difference from a traditional cybersecurity incident. Um, again, we've been talking about organizations changing name and mergers and all of that. There is another aspect to this. There are so many. Uh, but there is another aspect to this, is that this targets even singular developers. You don't need to be part of an organization. If you change your username, if you close your account, somebody can squat the account a few days after you closed it. Um, it's exactly the same attack vector. This is especially important because one of the things that is being, at least I've seen reports of this happening, is that when you go to a job interview as a developer, people will sometimes ask you to see the, your GitHub commit history. What happens is that developers will create fake uh, 
fake repositories and just commit code for themselves so that it shows up on their green squares on the on GitHub. So they show, see, I've done commits every single day for the past year. And that looks really good and the, the interviewer is impressed. And that's one way to get more brownie points for your job application. And that code will live on in GitHub. So if you decide to close the account further down the line, suppose somebody else was interested in the code for some reason and has cloned it or has referenced it in their project. And again, the door is open for this to happen. Just as people are looking at DNS changes and DNS domain expirations, you can bet that there are already automated tools out there that are looking for this type of events to happen and notify you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, they're crawling the internet for this right now as we record this podcast. So definitely check your repositories, especially if you've undergone a change. But um, you know, even the, the article that we'll have linked is recommending that you regularly check your repositories. And I agree, you should be doing that. And this is another thing to add to that list. Absolutely. One of so many, right? Yeah, as, as if they didn't have a hard <laughs> enough job already. It feels like every single week we just come out with new ways to for you to get white hair or get new headaches for your job. Okay, this is what you need to worry about for just to pile up on top of all the rest of the things that you're already doing. But if there's one thing that we've seen over the past few years is that the number of vulnerabilities and the number of exploits and the number of security incidents has only been rising. There's no sign that it's going to slow down. 2021 to 2022, the increase in total number of vulnerabilities that were found was 22% year over year. There were 22% more vulnerabilities in 2022 than the year before. That's a massive number if you think that there had already been close to 30,000 different vulnerabilities over different pieces of software, but 30,000 different vulnerabilities and it still grew 22% for the year after. And it's only going to grow again this year. And there is no slowing down on this. So you will need to pay more attention as if you weren't already. And you need to consider different attack vectors and different scenarios and even creative stuff like this that you hadn't considered before. Yep. And if you are new to IT or you're entering into the job market for IT for the first time or training to get into IT, and you're one of those people that you just can't stand being bored, like that's just not something that you want to deal with at work, the security industry is looking really good right now because I can promise you, you will not be bored if you work in security. And the the shortage of cybersecurity experts is so large that you'll likely get the cybersecurity job if you just say that you're interested in cybersecurity. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) There have been... This is a recurring meme around cybersecurity interviews, but you're expected to have 10 years experience in a technology that is only two years old. Um, That's how ridiculous it is, the the expectations on the field are. But I know I've mentioned this before. You can have many different roles in cybersecurity, not just knowing the, the technical side. Documentation, being a good communicator, getting the message out there, being able to explain why this is important, uh, being able to, I don't know, create great presentations that get the the people that authorize maintenance windows and that interested in the problem. Um, there are many different aspects of cybersecurity that do not directly relate to cybersecurity IT and cybersecurity technical. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in cybersecurity, you should look that up and 
make your way into the field and then progress to a more technical uh, aspect of it if that's what you're interested in as the shortage of people in the field is massive in the millions oh, wow yeah so that's a good field to get into we need you guys come save us please or help uh, help us fight the good fight i think that's what what we need right now so at some point we're going to be if you've ever picked up a tinfoil hat or something you're good to go for cybersecurity. security <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite possible. You don't you don't even have to wear it anymore. Just oh, I picked up this. This looks like a tinfoil hat. Great, come work for us. Mm -hmm. You know about cybersecurity. Um, yeah, that was our topic for today. Um, it was yet another different way to do supply chain attacks. I'm pretty sure it won't be the last one that we'll cover. Thank you very much to everybody who joined. As always, it was a pleasure, Jay, and see you on the next one. See you guys later.